Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week and I guide you gently through another show. We have a terrific guest for you this week. It's James Wright, who's the Global Chairman Havas PR Global Collective and Global CEO of Red Havas Group and possibly the longest job title we've ever had on the show, James. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. So I'm very excited today. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Well, I'm always excited to do the PR week, James, and especially when I can talk to a fellow Brit. So uh, you know, we'll get into that and talk about some good times that have asked by the sound of it. So uh, looking forward to that. And, and, then and in the cricket, and in the cricket, and the cricket is unbelievable. Yes, although I'm not sure how much our listeners are interested in that. But yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. I've been uh, really enjoying that. It's nice to have some sport to take my mind off my football team's Trevise. And we got Frank Washcook here, who's our uh, executive editor. How are you doing, Frank? Are you a cricket fan? I'm not much of a cricket guy, sorry. No, I can't see cricket taking off in the States, a game where you can play for five days and it ends in a draw. I do, I do appreciate the fact that they have uh, tea intervals, though. Very, very much so. Yeah. yeah, nice cucumber sandwich, cup of tea between uh, innings. Yeah, for sure. So we'll uh, speak to James and we'll talk about the big news stories of the week. Big change at Ketchum near a Chowdhury. North America president is leaving. We'll chat about that. A bit of a purpose conundrum. Ben and Jerry's is suing its holding company, Unilever. What's going on there? We'll talk about PR Week's exciting new Changemakers initiative, which we're doing with Google, all about agency diversity. And on the diversity front, Berlin Rosen has acquired a DEI shop. And uh, the LGBTQ task force has issued an RFP. And we'll finish, finish talking about travel chaos and communicating around that. I think most people will have experienced some travel woes over the past few weeks uh, and uh, more ahead in the summer. So we'll talk about that. But James, let's start with you. First of all, we, I know we always do this, but just explain, you, you, I mentioned the job titles, explain the structure. You've got Havas PR Global Collective and then Red Havas Group, which is part of that. It's it's fair to say Havas is probably not, it's, it's a truly global holding company. So maybe it's not as well known in the US as some of the others, but to, just talk us about the st- to, about the structure and what those pieces do and what they mean. Sure. Well, I'll start from the top, um, Steve. So Havas is a French holding company. We're actually owned by another holding company called Vivendi, which owns a lot of very successful and very well-known entertainment brands like Studio Canal that looks after many, many different movies, including the Paddington franchise, releasing the Railway Children this summer. Universal Music Group is a, the largest music company in the world about 45% of the world's recording artists were in gaming through Gameloft, etc. Canal Plus through um, the TV side too as well in, in, in a lot of the French-speaking parts of the world. And then you have Havas, and, and Havas obviously has different parts. And I look after the, the PR assets that we have from a chairman perspective and day-to-day though I sit in Red Havas, which is, if you like, in inverted commas, our sort of global generalist sort of PR business that works in sort of PR social and brand experience. And, and that business is fairly new. Red Havas was created in 2019 when we brought some of our Havas PR named assets uh, and the red agency business that I originally joined Havas to grow and develop in Asia Pacific 
um, when we brought those two together to become Red Habas. And the last sort of three years, I guess, since I, I've been in the global role, and in fact, it's a little bit longer than that because we were working to create Red Habas probably for a good sort of nine or 10 months before we actually launched it. We're in now sort of 14 markets, 22 offices, and um, it's been a it's been a, an incredible sort of journey. I do feel we hide our light under a bushel sometimes. Sometimes that's actually not a bad thing in the global world of PR, but um, it's been a, you know, Lots of challenges, as we all know, from the pandemic and and different industries being hit harder than others. And others, other industries, frankly, also have, have had tremendous success in the last two or three years, at least from a commercial perspective. And here we are today, pretty happy where we're sat. Yeah, and we'll get into some of that good news. You're you're about forty agencies, thirteen hundred people. We know some of the the individual agency names. We we know Republica and Havas Formula in the US, but they how do they fit into the the overall structure? Are they sort of part of one of your groups, or are they half part of it? What's what's the deal there? And what are, what are the other individual agency brands that people might know? Sure. Well, we're kind of, I guess, broken down into, uh, I would say, kind of four segments. So first, you've kind of got the, the global agency that is Red Habas. We then have another global networks called AMO. And this is all part of Habas PR Global Collective. The AMO network is, um, you know, expertise across public affairs and financial PR. And, and that's names, for example, like Abernathy McGregor, which is run by a wonderful guy called Tom Johnson in um, in the US, Maitland in the UK, Porter in uh, Hong Kong and China. Uh, so that they operate in that sector. And then we have kind of a couple of niche areas as well. So one is in healthcare, where we have a number of very strong domestic agency brands like Havas So, Havas Just, Havas Life Medicom as well exist in, in Europe. And then in the sort of fourth bucket, we have some other agencies that are, again, very, very strong in their own domestic market, but are more in the consumer or non-health side of the, the business, which is the likes of Havas Formula here in the US, which um, uh, under Michael Olguin has done an incredible job of, of developing themselves before they were Havas. And then when they joined Havas as part of an acquisition, and we work with them pretty regularly on different opportunities as and when, because of course, the skills that exist in Red Havas or other parts of the network can be supplemented by them. And we we will work very sort of closely together to ensure we're putting our best foot forward with new opportunities, organic opportunities, or whatever the client requirements are. And we put you at roughly 200 million global and about maybe 50 to 60 million in the US. That includes formula. I'm interested in the language you use to describe it. You call yourselves a merged media um, micro network. To explain the thinking behind that. That's, that doesn't sound like a PR group, but uh, is that a reflection of what modern PR is? If for us, yes. So in 2019, we launched Red Havas as what we called the, the world's first merged media uh, network and it's really kind of like a way of describing that integration that we're seeing in in all forms of media and channels. It's it's no longer about you know a channel. It's more about an experience that a client or a brand gives you as a as somebody that's consuming their stories. And so everything is kind of merging together. You know, um, you don't think about a brand talking to you through Facebook or through a newspaper or through a TV or through a radio. It's just an experience you're getting with the brand and that complete picture is is merged by all of the those kind of touch points that you have with that brand so for us the concept of merged media is is exactly what we're seeing and, and often when i speak to clients about it they would say reflect to me back you know we've been looking for a way in which to, to describe the way in which i guess the pr world has changed and that's that's a great way of describing it so it's good that that's been responded to so positively by 
a lot of the people that we've spoken to. I think uh, it's going to continue that way. Everything really is merging together with so many different ways in which you can consume media and information today that is very difficult often for a consumer to know the difference between paid, owned, earned, shared, um, let alone actually where they actually heard the story or saw the story. So for us, being able to put those expertises into the core of the business that can create those stories through multiple different channels is hugely important. I mean, in summary, I would say our strategy over the last few years has been to continue to own the earned space, but now also to earn the own space because increasingly we're being asked by clients, and this has happened for a long time in different parts of the world, and in the US it's becoming more and more um, important that you are able to manage the communication that comes out of the own channels of our clients. So, you know, there's very few pure play earned RFPs out there. It's it's often earned strategic comms, social, potentially events, brand experience. Um, and so they're looking for an agency that can help tell that story. So that's kind of how we arrived at this kind of merged media positioning. Yeah, it's interesting. We were talking about that at Cannes, weren't we, with... Uh most of the big ideas and winning ideas there have an earned media source. But as you said, they've got a, a paid and owned and a shared in the, in the social media part of it. And PR firms are really well suited to that. They're agile, they're nimble, they're used to moving quickly and adapting quickly. And that's one of the reasons PR is doing so well. But uh, I like the idea of earning the own space. That's a, that's a nice uh, way of putting it. Put some flesh on the bones then and of some of the work this year that has illustrated that. You've done some interesting stuff I'd love you to talk about the Ukraine work, but then the Ola Palau tourism work sounds really interesting too. Talk us through those two pieces of work. Yeah, sure. So we have an agency in Ukraine and um, the team in Kiev called me uh, back in, well, it was probably a couple of months ago now, and um, it was a Wednesday, I remember, it was lunchtime, and they had been asked by the local broadcaster in the Ukraine and the broadcaster in Poland, we also have a, a strong PR team in Poland, to see if we would come together and help support a charity telethon that was going to go out across 20 countries uh, in Europe that weekend. So this was Wednesday lunchtime. The, the, the telethon was going to start Saturday and run through the weekend. I remember that afternoon shooting out a few emails to my teams around the world. And by Thursday morning, we had 35 PR leaders from different offices on, the co- on a call uh, talking about how we were going to support them, you know, in terms of creating assets social assets that we could that could be shared, as well as the earned media component and, and drafting the releases that were required to, to send out so that media could, uh, well, knew that it was happening and that, that they could share how millions of people could be able to support it. So, you know, for us, that the Save Ukraine telethon was literally kind of a 72-hour gig almost in terms of actually the, the, the proactive work. Then obviously we were capturing all of the results of it since, since then. And actually... After that happened, we several weeks later, we've actually kind of run something very similar again, but very successful. And I think it proves that the network works, the fact that people can come together in our teams across the Red Havas and Havas PR operation more globally to come to the fore for an issue that that is obviously very important to a lot of people. Yeah, because it seems like the news agenda moves on so quickly. There's so much going on in the world that, you you know, it's easy to forget that Ukraine is still being obliterated by Russia, that the, the people are having a horrendous time. 
the images, it's, it's, it, it almost, you almost get image fatigue from it, don't you? So what do we need to do to make sure this issue stays in the public eye and that we actually move closer to a resolution to what is a horrendous situation? Well, so it's very close to me because we have team members there. And actually, the day I took that call, I remember speaking to six or seven of them, and they were either spread across Western Ukraine or, or had fled to Israel, Germany, Poland. In fact, we housed some of our team in the Polish office in in Warsaw, in our in our PR and advertising offices there. So, you know, for me, it's it's always kind of there because I, I speak to them pretty regularly. But we've got to keep the news out there and keep updating people what's happening. Of course, there's so much craziness in politics and in healthcare issues that's happening. Of course, shootings that are happening that are dominating yeah. the news that are all, all equally important. Don't get me wrong, you know. But um, you know, there, there is a there is a, a a country that is that is you know in dire straits right now because they've been invaded and. Um, We've, we've got to keep, I guess, like like any issue, you've got to find new ways of telling that story. And we have a lot of clients who have work in, cause, in the cause space and you know, throughout the COVID-19 crisis, trying to keep their own cause and diseases that they're championing, bringing those issues to the fore. So you've got to be creative and strategic, of course, but creative to be able to know and understand ways in which you can tell those stories. And I think that's why PR has really come to the fore in the last couple of years where businesses, organisations, even governments are looking for more creative ways to be able to tell their stories. And I think PR teams around the world are really uniquely placed to be able to do that with our understanding of the nature of media right now, which is where actually everything's a conversation now. It's not, you know, if you want to push out an advert, fine, go and buy an advert. But actually want to have a conversation, actually educate people about what's happening. You've got to enter into that dialogue. And I think that's where PR is. And, and, And one of the points I make time and time again is every single client we're all working for now in PR is a news brand. They are releasing information and news through their owned channels. So therefore, we're, we're becoming the de facto newsrooms for our clients. So how can we keep helping them tell their stories? And in, in the example we're talking about now in the Ukraine, how can we find different ways of telling those stories? And a beautiful one, I think, that's, that's come out of this Save Ukraine work is that we've got a lot of children that have been trapped and, and are in you know, sort of temporary accommodation, drawing pictures and doing artwork that's being shared through an Instagram handle to be able to tell their story of how they're learning and continuing to survive in these circumstances. And and those drawings are obviously also very kind of good from an educational cathartic perspective for their own psychological sort of well-being to be able to do that. And so actually helping promote those kind of stories has been, has actually been really fulfilling to be able to be part of. Yeah, we've got to keep the pressure on on that and uh, great work that you're doing there. So uh, long may that continue. Great to chat to you, James, and we'll get your input on some of the news stories. Starting, Frank, with just a breaker, actually, as we came into the studio. Big change at uh, Ketchum. Yeah. Um, so Neera Chowdhury, who was essentially the number two, uh, Ketchum under Mike Doyle, is stepping down from her role as president of North America. And Ketchum says in a statement that she's planning to take her career in a different direction. So we are going to see what that means as soon as we can. She has a a deep background in healthcare communications, and uh, her expertise has also included things like uh, business growth, DEI, talent, and various other aspects of the agency business. So we are looking forward to seeing where Nira ends up next. 
Yeah, more to come on that for sure. Let's talk about this Ben and Jerry story because it's a very curious situation. I remember when we profiled their grand bar of PR a couple of years ago that it was an interesting dynamic between Ben and Jerry's and its holding company Unilever, but now they're suing Unilever. Tell us all about it. This isn't the sort of business story you see all the time in which a brand is suing the parent company, but essentially what this comes down to is that Ben and Jerry's does not want to sell its ice cream in the occupied territories in the West Bank uh, as a protest of Israel's actions there. And uh, their parent company, Unilever, does want to continue to sell them. So they sold the Ben & Jerry's Israel business to an operator called American Quality Products to make sure that uh, they can continue to sell ice cream there. So in response, Ben & Jerry's has sued Unilever. Again, not a, not a thing you see all the time here with the brand suing a parent company we will see how it works out. But I think one thing it comes down to is this issue of a brand determining what its purpose is and, and how closely they're going to toe the line on that. Yeah, James, I don't know if you've ever fancied suing Vivendi over at Havas, but I mean, the bigger picture here is the whole issue of purpose, isn't it? And how it's quite difficult for a a, a brand like Ben & Jerry's has permission to do certain things, but it's sitting in with a, within a corporate structure, which might not have exactly the same um, you know, permission, although Unilever's done a lot of great work. We look, think of Dove and think of the Good Humor campaign. How are you making sure that your client's purpose and the work you're doing for them is authentic and transparent? But how difficult is, is it? Because these are not easy situations and easy things to navigate, are they? Absolutely not. And I think actually today is probably the most trickiest time in my time working in PR to be a CEO because you've kind of got an opinion and a position on almost everything. And so that makes things you know, particularly tricky. I actually don't think you do necessarily have to have a position on everything, but you have to have a position on um, the issues that matter to your key stakeholders and indeed the majority of your stakeholders. And so that's what Ben and Jerry's have done here. I mean, of course, they always position themselves as a almost a social impact company that also sells ice cream. I mean, I've worked with Ben & Jerry's in a couple of different markets in my career. Fascinating business to work with. And also, it's kind of an extra, extraordinary story that you know a business within a business is, is suing it. So it's interesting that they've, they've really stuck to their own purpose, if you like. And I do think purpose has been disrupted in the last couple of years through this pandemic, through these polarized politics, through the protests that we're seeing on all sorts of uh, of issues around social justice, because the reality is business has shifted and the expectations of our stakeholders has shifted. And therefore, you know, there's, we're working to a much higher bar in a lot of situations in terms of how we operate. So I would say that it, it's, it's what you probably might expect from Ben & Jerry's to be able to take a stand on this, although going legal is obviously quite a significant a position cool. to go it's, to. It yeah, really is, yeah. yeah. We heard Mike Pritchard at Procter & Gamble almost dialing back the purpose thing a bit. We've had activist shareholders saying you need to get back to shareholder value, etc. How are you are you seeing a backlash against purpose as we have, you know, slightly tougher economic times? I, I certainly think there's a bit of a rebalancing to that we're seeing with with clients in terms of, you know, the particularly from an employee-based perspective where perhaps employees were sort of leading the, the company a little bit too much in terms of what their, their expectations were. I think there's also a reality check in terms of what that means for the commercials of the business. 
But it depends on the industry. And of course, it depends on their own business. I think every business can no longer take a, an industry-wide approach. It's, it's almost like, you know, what is, where are you, is your own compass on these pieces and you stick to them? You know, what is your, uh, what is your values? And, and they can't just be words on a page. You know, they have to be stand for something more. I mean, we've written a, a couple of white papers on this called, um, um, sorry, we called it From Pledges to Progress, having a bit of a, a brain die there. But anyway, it's all about progress, basically. You know, how are we going to make progress against the backdrop of uh, businesses that are uh, simply pitching words out there? So that's where I think we've got to see action. And like I say, I think you've got to find your own values. You've got to find your own way through it. But it's it's a tricky one. Yeah. And look, good business, purposeful business it can also be profitable and Unilever was certainly saying two or three years ago that it's most profitable brands where it's most purposeful. So that's the that's the argument that's really going to sway shareholders and, and stakeholders, isn't it? But uh, yeah, we'll no doubt come back to that topic. It is one of the biggest issues of our time. Frank, we launched PR Week and Changemakers with, in partnership with Google, and the ad, it's an agency diversity initiative. Tell us all about it. I'm really looking forward to see what the results of this program are, and I think a lot of CCOs and um, people who run communications departments are as well. And this is uh, it's a program, like you said, combination of PR Week and Google, working to identify the agencies that really walk the talk when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the two organizations are going to be identifying those that uh, have equitable hiring practices, staff development opportunities, effective mentoring and cultures, and, and you know, an environment that allows employees to be their authentic selves in the workplace. So how are we going to do that? There's going to be a Changemakers Advisory Council of client-side PR leaders that will be set up to assess what agencies can demonstrate proper representation in their leaderships and ranks in terms of ethnicity, gender, sexuality, disability, and age. Now, if you talk to CCOs or brand leaders or people with equivalent titles, they, they will tell you just how important it is for them to get diverse agency teams working on their businesses. And I don't think any of them would say that most agencies are where they should be on this. So really interested to see the agencies that have really lived up to the mark on this. Yeah, for sure. And if you're interested in registering your interest as an agency, please look at the news story on prweek.com. There's a link there for you to register and ask, and there's a small questionnaire. If you're a client-side person, you want to be on the Changemakers Council, there's a link there as well. So please let us know on that. And we will uh, have podcasts with the winning agencies. We'll have Q&As. We'll have a session at PR Decoded in October. And uh, it's going to be a great initiative. James, two years on from the murder of George Floyd, it's important we keep up the pressure on diversity, um, especially ethnic diversity. How are you doing that at Havas? And um, hopefully you'll be entering into this uh, initiative yourself. Yeah, well, I'm, I was actually just learning about it the last couple of days as you've uh, announced it. You know, I think it's a great, really positive move. Um, we've done a huge amount of work in this area. It's, of course, you know, still work in progress. And I think, you know, we we still have a lot of doing to do in terms of recruiting more diverse candidates into the business, although it's still a very challenging market in terms of, uh, of, of finding talent anyway. But, you know, we, we became the first agency holding group to release our statistics around the diversity of our workforce by job level and by location uh, a couple of years ago. And that was a, a very big move in terms of being really transparent about it. This is also, I guess, though, the reason we did it was 
that's what we would would advise our clients. You know, you need to be transparent about where you are so you can actually start to address some of those issues. We also last year for the first time hired a director of DEI and a head of social impact as well. We launched a whole range of different initiatives to educate and train team members around the importance of diversity and diversity action, understanding the difference between being an active ally and an ally, just opening our minds to things, you know, and we've still got a long, long way to go at at our end as well, you know, but, um, you know, it's progress. But as you say, we've got to keep on it so that we, you know, we keep it front of mind and we keep moving forward and we keep progressing. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the clients really uh, are insisting on it now and hence uh, Google wanting to partner with us on this. So going to be a great initiative. Looking forward to working on that. Frank, as uh, staying with diversity, Berlin Rosen has acquired a DEI shop. Tell us the details on that. Really interesting deal here. Uh, Berlin Rosen has acquired the consulting firm Onward. Onward's founder, Thaler Germain, is going to be Berlin Rosen's first managing director for transformation and culture as a part of the deal. She's reporting up to Principal Andy McDonald. This is another case of two firms that have worked together uh, over the past few months, and it evolves into an acquisition, uh, which we've seen in a few cases. should also mention this is following a major investment in Berlin Rosen by O2 Investment Partners earlier this year. Another yeah. big trend, the uh, private equity and investment groups pushing further into the agency business. Yeah, I was going to ask James about that. The M&A market in the agency space is hot, and it's been hot for two, a couple of years now. How are you approaching that at Havas? Have you uh, got any uh, deals on the horizon? Are you constantly looking around? And what sort of shops are you looking for? We're in the market, of course. You know, we're um, we're very active. I mean, we've grown up through acquisition. We're a very entrepreneurial network. We don't have the size in terms of the marketing comms part of our business, at least to have us that perhaps some of the bigger holding groups do. So we've had to be smart around taking that entrepreneurial spirit. Obviously, we're, we're considerably uh, we're a considerable size when you take our Vivendi ownership, but we are looking at uh, a few agencies. We're looking in a couple of different ways. One is where are our geographical gaps, particularly in big markets where perhaps we don't have PR assets. So in those situations, I will work with my colleagues in the advertising and media agencies who perhaps do have assets there to be able to get some local knowledge and information about agencies and 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 then you know obviously start conversations if that's a market that we want to be in. And I can tell you there's a couple of those happening right now. And then in some of the bigger markets where we perhaps have gaps in some of the expertise that we have and that we want to add to, or indeed where we do have expertise, but we want greater bandwidth. So again, a couple of conversations happening there. So, I mean, watch this space. I mean, we're, as, as you'll see, you know, Havas is very active in that space. We've bought a number of PR businesses in the in the past. And, you know, that will continue, I'm sure. I can't go into some of those deals that we're we're at the squeaky end of right now, but it's a good place to be at the minute because I think that there's some fantastic independent agencies out there that that we could potentially partner with, and I think would make us stronger as as a network, but also we can help them grow and develop offers that we're seeing that clients need. Just to clarify your B Corp status with us, because I imagine that is quite attractive to maybe some firms who want to join your network or even employees who want to come and work for you? Yeah, so we went through B Corp last year. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big investment uh, and it's an ongoing it's not easy, investment it? in, in resource. No, it isn't. And you know, the teams that were involved in that, you know, I take my hat off to them because I saw the amount of work that went into it. 
And um, you know, there was a big celebration when we when we finally got it. It's come up actually in a couple of pitches as well, actually, from procurement where it was a factor. I would say more in a, more in Europe. I think the B Corp status has become more of a factor from a procurement perspective in Europe. Um, in in the acquisitions, I think they're very interested in what our position is on big issues. B Corp, I think, is just a a, a almost like a you know, rubber stamp on some of the ways in which we we want to operate. And we've obviously taken big stances on issues like climate in the past and have done through B Corp, through our B Corp commitments too. So for us, I think it's also a point of pride for our people. And because not many yeah. you know, agencies can say that they've got it. Yeah, Freud's, I think, is a B Corp, but there aren't, you're right, there aren't, I can't think of many US firms, if any others, that are, that are B Corp. So yeah, definitely. Frank, uh, the LGBTQ task force has issued an RFP. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's actually two RFPs, and it's ahead of the group's 50th anniversary. So the task force is the oldest LGBTQ organization in the U.S., and they're looking for one firm to do event management and planning and another for marketing and publicity support. There was about a total budget for the two of them of just around a half million dollars. Really interesting tidbit here from Kathy Renna, who uh, is the director of communications at the task force. And she she talked about going beyond the bigger markets here to a lot of smaller markets and local communities where these agencies would have to have a strength because this is uh, local areas and states are where a lot of these battles are being fought for more LGBTQ rights, uh, to uphold the rights that they've won in recent years. Uh, so that's an interesting aspect of, the, of, um, of these two RFPs that are out right now. Yeah, especially when rights are being deferred to the states. That's a, a really good point there. Are you seeing lots of new business opportunities out there, James, this, despite the slightly tougher economic climate? I suppose one of the beauties of PR is you need great counsel in good times and especially bad sorry, more of an exciting time to work in PR and strategic comms. We've seen that throughout the pandemic where so many businesses have tran- had to transform and change the way in which they operate and also, I guess, breed confidence in their people that the business can continue and with their shareholders as well, that, that, that the wheels can keep on turning. And as all of these kind of issues come up in terms of progress and developments, the, the need to communicate and almost overly communicate has, has never been more important. So we're seeing that a huge amount. And I would say, you know, corporate comms has really started to break itself down into some very specialist areas over the last couple of years. We've seen massive opportunities in, you know, executive visibility and change communications and reputational management, ESG. Uh, it's, uh, it's you know, employee engagement, uh, all of which, you know, were originally captured under one corporate comms sort of opportunity uh, that might have come through as, a, as, a, as an RFP, but now continuously sort of being broken down into more specific specialisms, yeah. which I think is really interesting to see. Yeah. And sometimes opens up uh, different budget pots as well, which is always good. And uh, some of the work that doesn't really get recognised at can. So when everyone's navel gazing about that, I don't think we should worry too much. I think things are looking good for the PR industry. Let's finish with travel. We've probably all got back on the road and whether that's in the car or on the aeroplane or trains. And it's pretty chaotic out there. I can say that from personal experience. Frank, uh, talk us through it. Yeah, it's um, it's been chaotic. Like you said, I think I've actually was pretty happy not to be traveling this weekend that we uh, just came back from. One company responding to this is Delta, whose CEO apologized to SkyMiles members 
in a letter last Thursday after a spate of cancellations and delays. And, you know, they certainly weren't the only airline that uh, that was canceling or, or delaying a ton of flights. I, I think it raises the question of when an airline apologizes. I mean, does that mean anything to somebody who's missed a wedding or a family event or anything like that? On one hand, I don't know. On the other, it seems like an apology is the least they could do. So uh, looking, this is this is the sort of thing that we're, we're going to look to see what other travel companies act similarly, act differently, how they make it up to customers, uh, and things like that. Because this, these disruptions, as we, I don't want to say come out of COVID, but move to a different stage of COVID, are going to keep happening uh, as there are workforce shortages and economic issues and oil price issues and all of those things. Yeah, it's so frustrating when you, you're on uh, on hold, you can't get through to anyone, you just feel like you're not valued as a customer. For those, anyone following Alison Weisbrot, our Campaign US editor, her bag has finally arrived back from Cannes. You'll be pleased to know if you've been tracking that. She had terrible problems and let's just say Air Canada and Swiss Air are not top of her Christmas card list this year but uh, that story's been repeated throughout and uh, James you travel a lot you've you've seen it firsthand and you've got travel clients what's your take on it? It's so frustrating right now to to travel whether it's personal or through business I think we're all in the same sort of boat now sort of uh, it doesn't matter what classification you've got with Actually, an airline a boat is one that i haven't tried but maybe i should <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean i've mean, i've had so many issues with airports recently and you know the airlines often blame the airports because of you know there's a lack of baggage handlers or some some such and then you know the airports have blamed the airlines because flights have been cancelled and it all kind of like becomes a really sort of horrible uh, experience and of course, we're being asked to pay through the nose for a lot of this yeah. now. You know, the prices are incredible, just man. incredible. And um, yeah, but yeah, we, we've got clients in the airline industry, in the hotel industry, and uh, in fact, in that, in fact, we work for a couple of airports as well. And it's 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 happening in a lot of lot of different parts of the world. Actually, I guess you know, there's a couple of places that I, that I know where where it's been a lot better. But you know, I've travelled this year through Spain, the UK, Australia of course, all across the US. And it's pretty much a similar experience everywhere. I mean, there's nothing worse than, than you know, you're either getting delayed or you land somewhere. And, I mean, I've been stuck on flights, um, on planes for three hours on a runway waiting for, a, you know, a gate to be free. Or indeed, actually, more recently, I, I think I arrived in Sydney, I had to wait two and a half hours for my bags to come off, you know, and I was racing to a, a you know, a, a business meeting. So, I, I mean, what, what do you do? I mean, it, there seems to be so many stakeholders involved in, in, in the travel, it's where do you where do you lay your blame? And of course, it it, it is no thanks that when people come out with an apology. Although I will say, um, Ed Bastian at Delta, I think, was superb throughout the pandemic with his communications. And I think you know he is a guy that definitely has really come out of the pack in terms of how he communicates, and how proactively he does, and is willing to say sorry when it's required. Um, I follow his um, podcast, which I think is called Gaining Altitude. It's really fascinating listening to him how how he talks and 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 thinks about how his business is going to run and he is also another advocate for the issue of purpose and and, and how Delta approaches that. So I recognise there's always going to be problems, but actually he's done a pretty good job of communicating throughout the last couple of years of all the changes that have happened to, in particular, the airline industry. Yeah, is he a client, James? He's not a client. Wished he was. There you go. 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. They put on a pizza party, didn't they, for uh, some uh, a flight uh, in Rome? But um, it it is that feeling of powerlessness and frustration and feeling like they don't, really don't care. And the people on the ground are the people you're having the interactions with, and some of them really aren't very good at it. And others, I, I had a fantastic experience on Virgin coming back from the UK. It was it was really good. The, cabin staff were friendly they were having banter with the passengers you know the food was good and the flight was on time so it makes so much difference and those people on the the ground or if you're having those interactions with they need training in communications because believe me uh, easy jet or difficult jet as I call them certainly uh, are, are not on the same level when it comes to that sort of customer service so I did get a five hour detour through France in a hire car courtesy of them because they dumped me at an airport that far away from my destination but anyway no one wants to hear about my travise listen James great to catch up with you thanks for joining us on the podcast and uh, safe travels back to the US from the UK thank you we'll see you soon yeah and Frank always a pleasure yeah, thanks for having me on, Steve. Don't forget our Changemakers initiative. Go to prweek.com, look at the story. You've got the links in there to find out more. The Purpose Awards, you've got until the end of this week to get your entries in. That's all the great work that's going to be celebrated at PR Decoded and really provide those case studies for others to aspire to emulate. And that's part of PR Decoded on the 11th and 12th of October. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.